Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. The state is the general substance whereof individuals are but mere accidents. The state alone possesses rights. The state incarnates the divine idea upon earth. Hegel. Hence, in order to once again enslave mankind and return to feudal times when only the elite rulers or the satori had rights, they devised a method they termed the dialectic process commonly referred to as the Hegelian philosophy. What Hegel and his cohorts concluded was that in order to facilitate the changes they wanted, two opposing thought structures must be brought to prominence, and out of the confusion brought on by these opposing thoughts, a new and different paradigm would develop. It is of the utmost importance that the reader clearly understand this concept, because it is at the root of how change in our society is instituted by the Satori. The Hegelian dialectic is the principal vehicle used by the conspiracy to orchestrate change within our system and is so manipulated by them as to ensure the desired outcome. An example, first the desired outcome of the dialectic is generated. Second, two radically opposite concepts are structured and presented to the public. Third, two opposing radical views are moderated so as to become the planned Satori outcome. By playing the citizenry like marionettes, one against the other, through vehicles of class envy, racial strife, political separation, culture, and gender conflict, we are separated and played against one another. Through these dialectics, and out of this division, the Satori hope to achieve their new world order. This method of operation makes the exposure of the conspiracy 
all the more difficult. They in fact use it to divide and conquer. Through it they say, look, we represent no planned outcome, there is no uniform structure, there are basic fundamental differences between us, and to say that we represent the membership of the conspiracy is a delusionary figment of the radical right's imagination. You must understand now and forever that the Satori no longer care for conservative, liberal, socialist, or capitalist dogma. To the Satori, all these are simply a means to an end. These people have been at this for generations, and make no mistake about it, they are not stupid. The Hegelian philosophy was prominent in Germany at the turn of the last century. From there it went to England, and then gradually America. The Satori have been using it since at least 1830 with considerable success. The root of the Satori rests in Germany, where from about 1700 until the First World War, Germany was preeminent in philosophy, music, engineering, science, and mathematics. It is unfortunate that we in our busy lives, with continuously for over 20 years declining standards of living, and in most cases in two working parent households, if there are indeed two parents at all, remain unaware of this dialectic. We do not think of these matters as events unfold. We are kept too busy feeding ourselves and paying exorbitant taxes to actually follow the money. We do not look behind the false headlines that are fabricated to pit race against race, sex against sex, class against class, all in order to make more restricting laws that affect the individual liberty of the everyday citizen. We are played like a fine instrument, rich against poor, women against men, theist against atheist, infirm against healthy. The list is endless. All of these dialectic issues are orchestrated from above. World conspiracy is a fact, not a theory. It is well documented in hundreds of books, documents, and as this text will show, in the actual statements made by members of the very conspiracy whose existence they deny. While most philosophic tenets are theoretical in nature, this one is not. It is a constant and has been so for decades. Without control of the media, news entertainment, radio, and television, all the efforts of the Satori would come to naught, being exposed by those very people. It is an apparent and provable fact that major world news and entertainment sources march to the beat of the same drummer. The Satori, the Satori through their mandarins or lower level people, have infiltrated not only the primary information services, but also academia, law, government, investment banking, entertainment, and to some degree, organized religion. The lowest participation rate of the Mandarin infiltration is in the manufacturing sector with around 12% participation. A fine example of the Mandarin presence is the first Clinton term. All cabinet members were Mandarins. Not one came from a real-life job, and they represented a group of academics, lawyers, and government functionaries. It should be obvious to you that the Satori do not care if you are black, white, liberal, or conservative, Christian or not. They control all and frankly do not care which group you belong to. A large portion of their control is through financial manipulation. 
Countless billions of dollars are redirected to achieve the Satori's desired outcome. This is carried out through diversion of your taxes and through tax-exempt foundations. It is an unfortunate fact that more than half of the mandarins have no idea of the master plan, nor that one even exists. They are not aware that they are the instruments of our and their own ultimate enslavement to a new type of feudalism. These new mandarins, like the mandarins of old China, do their master's bidding with conviction that they are serving society's best interests. And I'll add, for the greater good and the great work and the order out of chaos, do it for the children. It's all the same thing. That's from a book called The Satori and the New Mandarins by A.H. Craig. And I thought that was just kind of interesting because it, it kind of goes along with really what we do see so much. You know, they give us a couple of different choices that make one seem really horrible to one side and the other one seem good to the other, right? But usually when it happens, when there is a change, it's something a little bit different than both. Or they'll present one that looks horrible. And so the other one they present doesn't look that bad. And people really don't look into the bills and things that are going on. They're not big into looking into policies and legislation and reading the fine print. And so, especially if you make it partisan, you've got that locked from your party. But if you present something that they put out there is somewhere kind of in the middle moderate, a lot of your representatives are going to go for it and the people are not going to argue about it. And a lot of times... That is the very plan the elites, or the Satori, if you will, wanted in the first place. And, you know, they present this scenario time and time again where there's a problem. So they can react. The government and their henchmen and their cronies can react and come up with the solution, the solution that they wanted in the first place. And so I believe that that's what we've seen for so many years, just like the book's saying since the turn of the 20th century anyway. And you want to go back to the Gulf of Tonkin, 9-11, or even right now with the poke, the cough-cough, and all that. So I was reading that book the other day, and I thought, you know what, I want to, I want to tell my friends and listeners about that even though a lot of you already know about the Higlian dialectic and, and philosophy, I think it's good to remind ourselves of this because it is so rampant in our society. And you know, I've come to the conclusion where I think that probably most of our representatives on both sides are on the take. I feel like there are more actors in a play to keep us from thinking about what's really going on behind the scenes. So we won't realize that process is actually going on, that Hegelian dialectic. So you get the Pelosi's and the AOC's and you get the, you know, even, even maybe Rand Paul and, of course, Trump when he was in and these other guys, Ted Cruz and people, and, and we focus on them and whatever they're saying and whatever controversy that they've brought up that the news is spinning. But we're not really looking at these power plays behind the scenes and 
what this legislation has involved in it and what this country's doing and and in what this bank is doing with our country and what the Federal Reserve's doing and you know it's just insane and so I wonder if even good guys apparent good guys like Rand Paul are on the take if they're just actors in this play because it sure seems like nothing much ever changes and the Republicans talk a good game a good game of patriotism and we're gonna stand up but look at where we are what has it done because so many times when it was really important they just rolled over and you know why wouldn't they and especially when it comes to things like the poke the prick because think about it drug companies are extremely powerful extremely powerful we know that these cable news companies are not going to go against them because they get most of their ad revenue from the pharmaceutical companies. And then talking heads like Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and different ones, they're not going to bite the hand that feeds. So that's why they refuse to talk about the drug companies. It's why they refuse to talk about the Council on Foreign Relations. Why? Because the council has all the big companies in their corporate membership. The Pfizer's and the Merck's and the different ones. So they're not going to alert you to how your government really works. They will point out that one and his family are crossing the border and they're a threat to sovereignty. But they won't point out that the Council on Foreign Relations and all these other big NGOs are directly saying they want to get rid of sovereignty and get rid of borders and create a one-world government. So what does it all mean? So who's writing these big bills? Well, the Council on Foreign Relations and these large companies. And you know, when you think about these representatives, if they do finally get voted out because they're pieces of crap, they just take a lobbying position where they're making even more money than they did before. So they're still influenced heavily by these large corporations. So it really is about being honest enough with ourselves to realize what kind of system we have. This system is not capitalist. It's not socialist. Of course, it's not communist. It is a conglomeration of all of these different types of systems. But it's going to be something a bit different. And so with everything going on, all these different battles, all these different issues that we have to be so scared or angry over, well, when it rolls out, when everything settles, it's going to be the system that the elite or the Satori wanted to put in place. Because that's one of the reasons for the chaos because they want to build their own kind of order. So we're looking at a newer system ahead. A feudalist system, a public-private partnership, slash fascism with benefits. And so that's what we've got to look forward to, I believe. And I believe that so many of our representatives are on the take. And it may not just be nationally may not just be the big ones we see on CNN, Fox, and all that. It may be locally. It may be statewide. 
And so what do we do about it? Well, what can we really do about it? You know, the people that have the loud voices are not really even talking about what's really going on or how the system really even works. You know, I talked about the big ones like Hannity and, and Shapiro and, and Ingram, but even these smaller guys who are supposed to be for the people, they don't talk about the Council on Foreign Relations. They don't talk about a lot of these other you know, NGOs. They don't talk about the Council for National Policy. They're not pointing out, even on the right, that Biden's administration has over 20 CFR, half a dozen Aspen Institute guys, several Carnegie Endowment guys, including the last president of the Carnegie Endowment and the president of the Aspen Institute. So they're really loading up on these globalists. And the people on the right are not even talking about that. They'll keep you angry over these smaller issues, which may or may not be important in the big picture. But they're not pointing out these super important things, these super important facts. And if you don't point out that, then you don't understand that all of these administrations have these same globalists in them. It's just that Biden's administration is so full of the globalists that are tied to these corporate-backed NGOs that it's just obscene. You know, Carter, his administration was filled with trilateral committee members. And these different ones have had a bunch of these members from these NGOs. There's all kinds of these NGOs now. They rule the world, really. Uh, so we have to look at how things are done in our system. And even with libertarians, I don't think they have a clue because they want to kind of, you know, make fun of Republicans and Democrats, which is great and all, but they have to, they need to look at things honestly and say, look, you know, the Pelosi's and the Trump's and all this, that's what they are showing us because they want us thinking about them instead of how really the system works through these corporate funded NGOs and lobbyists and different things like that. And so while people are focused on something these top Democrats and Republicans are doing because it's in the spotlight, all kinds of other things are going on behind the scenes that people will never even look into. And you go back to BlackRock working with the Federal Reserve, and that happened under Trump, and it's still happening. And BlackRock and Vanguard owns everything. Blackstone. So... How does our system really work? We have to be honest. It does not work like we think it does. You know, the military doesn't work like we thought it did. Because, again, they work hand-in-hand hand with these groups like the Atlantic Council and the Council on Foreign Relations, who are globalists, who are tied to these large monopoly corporations. Go back to what Smedley D. Butler, Major General Smedley D. Butler, said about his 30-plus years in the military, being a leader, ended up being a, a high-price hitman for all these different corporations. And he was overseas doing all these different things to make it better and to make a better climate for these different corporations. Remember Biden said, if there wasn't an Israel, the U.S. would have to create one to protect its interests 
in the Middle East. Think about that. You don't really need to say anything else. So, so many things that are presented to us in one way are not really like that. You know, I talk about how we live out our lives with these political fantasies and we don't really think about what's really going on. We see our politicians the way we want to see them, regardless of what they actually accomplish and do. You know, people think that uh, Trump is underground fighting enemies in Washington, D.C. with his bare hands. Hesher from Boiler Room, ACR, he, he sent me this video of this Dan Crenshaw dude, this uh, political ad campaign where the guy's jumping out of an airplane like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. It's this big production. And it just, it just really went along with everything I've been thinking about lately because I just keep thinking... People want the BS. They want the fantasy. They don't really even care about the reality anymore. And we see that especially with our presidents. But, you know, I think it's just coming to, coming to a head more than ever, this cult of personality that's taken over people. And it's so easy to do it. You, you don't want to think about people being dumb. And it's not that people are dumb, really. It's just that they don't think and they don't look outside the headlines. And, you know, I think that the only thing that we can do, really, about these things is tell other people while trying to live our lives out as free as possible. I don't see any other option. And, you know, there'll be new opportunities for people, even under the Great Reset and this new feudalist system. But again, we just need to be honest about the system and the world that we live in. You know, and getting back to the Hegelian dialectic, I think that we can also apply that to presidential races. And what I mean by that is, you know, it changes every four to eight years from so-called liberal to so-called conservative, even though many of the important policies stay about the same. So they were able to use Trump against the Democrats in the way that they hated him so badly, and he played up that part so perfectly that when they brought Biden in to bring in all this corporatism and bring in the Great Reset, that he looked like what they really wanted. And the Biden administration was indeed what the deep state wanted. Now, the Democrats, they think he's what they want. But obviously, you can look back at his past, the things that he said, numerous bills that he's gotten behind, and they were not what the Democrats pushed for at all, a lot of them. But anyway, it's that dialectic. You make one thing seem really bad, so the people will pick what the deep state, what the elites, what the Satori actually want, thinking it's good. And I feel like they do that with the presidents. They can do it just the same, and they have done it just the same using the liberal. So that's one way that we got Trump, I think, is they pushed Obama, and they, they use it back and forth. They use these presidents because they always say, you know, that they are the dividers and chiefs, uh, divider and chief, but they use them to push half the public one way and half the public the other, and then they decide to go back the other way a little bit. It's like a yo-yo. 
It's all psychology. It's all simple psychology, really. But, you know, they had Obama, which was, by all intents and purposes, he was really a pretty liberal, socialist-like guy. You know, he even said that he had an admiration or whatever for communist professors. So many of his uh, stances was very liberal. But they used that because it allowed them to bring in Trump. Because the conservatives hated Obama so bad and were so fearful of what he was doing that they're like, just give us this guy because he's talking about the things we want to hear. And that's the way they do it, of course. All politicians tell their base, or potential candidates tell their base what they want to hear so they can run and get in office. But that dialectic is used in so many situations. I think we're fooled by it all the time, and we don't even realize it. So I think that's super, super important to think about. History is important. It's important to learn these techniques that are used on us all the time. A lot of things. And so kind of getting away from that a little bit and talking a little bit about current headlines. You know, we got so much going on at all times that it's hard to pick one thing and really focus on it. I think, you hear my cat, I think the most important thing is that these private companies like United Airlines are starting to force their employees to take the jab. And of course, I saw yesterday that the military is going to all have to take the jab. And, and they were early on testing these things on the military, if you look back at it, as they always seem to do. So when one government agency starts to do that, one department, then it starts to spiral. And the same with the private sector. The private and the public sectors are so much alike because they work together so much. And, you know, you, you have these different outlets like Turning Point USA. Yeah, some of the things they say, of course, are true, but it's always government, 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 government. They, they're not going to, again, tell you about the Council on Foreign Relations and how it allows for all these big private corporations and monopolies to work hand-in-hand -hand with the government. It's where it all comes together. They just want to blame things on the government, and it's a partnership. You know, it's like I say, it's a it's this coming public-private partnership, but really, it's something that's been going on for so very long. They're just now starting to kind of talk about it, and I think they have, you know, come up with this term a few years ago, the public-private partnership, which doesn't sound nearly as bad as fascism, but. You know, these private companies are going to get away with it. You know, if the conservatives were really who they say they are, these talking heads and whatnot, they would be condemning all these private businesses for forcing this just as bad as the government. But no, they won't because they, they are in bed with a lot of these companies and they're afraid to condemn them. And they're afraid to condemn the pharmaceutical companies because, again, going back to the Hannity's and the Ingram's and the the Tuckers and the different ones of the world, their advertising, their ad revenue comes from these pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, yesterday I was looking at AstraZeneca, and I noticed that they were formed out of the ashes of the Imperial Chemicals Industries out of the UK, which made bombs 
and made nerve agent and made you know steel parts for military and I believe if I'm not mistaken that they were actually condemned in the USA over their participation in selling the Nazis uh, parts equipment for WW2 so that's where your AstraZeneca comes out of they made chemicals and nerve agents and different things like that so you see the military industrial complex playing a part also in this new poke industry that is making a killing and yes i do mean a killing it's all coming together it's these are the scariest times i think when and i've said this before of course it just makes common sense but when they can force or all but force people to take a substance into their veins that will be there forever, then all bets are off. They can do anything. And they're seeing by the pushback or the lack thereof here in the United States what they can get away with. And so, you know, the United States is so lackadaisical here, everyone, and they're just like, oh, well, I guess I need to do it. And my government would never do anything bad to me. You know, the, it's like they ignore all these different things that ha have happened throughout history. Never mind the fact that there is the profit incentive. But also, there is the fact that these manufacturers cannot be held liable for any injury or death from their products. They've been shielded by the government. And... You know, in a common sense world, a practical sense, critical thinking world, that would raise enough caution right there to say, no, we cannot be allowing this to be all but forced on us because it hasn't been properly tested. And even if it had been, you know, and I always go back to look at all the other products that have been created by the pharmaceutical industries that have been found out later to cause death or injury. And these are products that have been clinically tested. So we have to keep that in mind. That's just critical thinking skills there. That's comparing information. You know, what other product would we allow the government to force us to get? I mean, we rebel against much lesser things. I mean, it's, it's insane what we are putting up with. And we're being guilted guilted by these maniacs and by our government and by these private corporations into getting something in which, again, the manufacturers cannot be held liable for. So that's insanity. We wouldn't do that with any other product. And this is something you're injecting into your body over some sickness that has such a very, very small mortality rate and it mostly affects people who are elderly and have had more than one sickness already. One or more comorbidities. And they want to give it to our kids. And, you know, we, our teenagers. We see all these things. Everything they've said has been a lie. Everything they've said. They come out and they say it can stay on surfaces for this many hours or days. Then they walked that back. They walked back how far 
apart people needed to be for the virus to spread. They walked back the masks. They said you wouldn't have to wear masks once you're vaccinated. Now they changed that. It's just insane. It's a never-ending cycle of misinformation and information that doesn't coincide with the previous info that they've given us. So it's it's all coming together. I mean, it seems to me like everything is coming together so fast. And I guess it's too late to do much about it except absolutely refuse to get this jab. And these awful, evil corporations are now going along with the government and these pharma companies to force their employees to have to get the jab. And they're going to force people, if they want to fly, to take the jab and to come into certain countries to take the jab. And, and you know, as much as people have joked around about, let me see your papers, it's coming to that, where you're going to have to have your papers or your card to go into bars and concerts and any of these things. And they have found this way to create this medical tyranny. I mean, you got to hand it to them. It's working perfectly for a lot of the populace. You know, it, so they figured out a way to create tyranny. They can't do it just outright. So they had to have a really good reason to have this control over all the people. So what better way to do it than just scare the hell out of them and make them think that we're all going to die if we don't obey. It's brilliant. It's really brilliant. And it's just this culmination of powers and of plans that have been working together for so very long, like the author A.H. Craig in this book that I mentioned has talked about. And you know, he talks about the, the trading blocks and how they've wanted to create these trading blocks for years and years. You know, you've got the G7, the G8 nations. They wanted to create these four trading blocks because trading blocks will make it easier to consolidate the powers and consolidate the countries together if they're ever able to pretty much create this world order that they want to create. And in here he's talking, of course, about NAFTA, GATT, the WTO, how that affected jobs, how that really brought down the U.S. standard of living, but built up other nations' standards of living. And that was part of the plan. And he goes on to say, of course, that this, you know, this plan for world domination didn't start in America. It started in Europe and in the U.K. and those places. So a lot of these you know, rich elites who had these plans come from that point of view and they don't care about America or sovereignty or anything like that. That means nothing to them. And, you know, that's hard for us to believe because we live here where, you know, our nationalism has been kind of shoved down our throats. But then, again, everything goes too far. But if you don't have some of that, then you don't have a country. And if you don't have a country, then you have a world order. And that's just the way it goes. That's just common sense. That's what they're trying to push. And, well, they're getting closer to it for sure.
he says in here, I thought was kind of interesting. He says, let us reflect on the Satori plan for world domination. Let us consider how one would accomplish such an endeavor. Obviously, it would be impossible to control over 200 different nation states and the millions of businesses contained therein. Just as a plain fact, and remember, uh, this book was written in 1997, so he says, just as a plain fact, Rockefeller controls the Chase Manhattan Bank with only 9% of the outstanding stock. You see, total control of everything is not a requirement. If you just control the G7 industrialized nations plus certain raw material deposits in Russia and South Africa, you can easily rule by intimidation. To ease that control burden, the G7 block has been separated into three different entities managed by varying groups of mandarins. The Bilderbergs do Europe, the Council on Foreign Relations does North America, and the Trilateral Commission does the Pacific Rim. So I understand a few of these things have changed slightly, but not very much since he wrote this book. And actually, the plan has come much further along. Although, you know, we couldn't see that the European Union would break up. That wasn't really something that we saw coming. So I don't know exactly where that comes into play unless it's order out of chaos. Although, I am all for the Union breakup. And that whole thing was put together by Churchill and the global elite as a measure to work towards the global governance that they tried to come up with under the League of Nations. And one thing I wanted to mention, too, that is in this book a little bit, but it was talked about a lot in, I believe it was called Dark Majesty of Tex Mars's book. But I actually found one of Mikhail Gorbachev's books, that talks a little bit about it himself. You know, this guy was the leader of Soviet Russia when the wall fell, when supposedly the whole thing come collapsing down. And what did we do? Not us, but what did our government do? Well, they befriended him, and he was great buddies with George Herbert Walker Bush. Both of these guys were hardcore globalists, hardcore UN supporters, and they moved that guy over to California, and he was allowed to start his own powerful foundation, which was really a big, green, kind of environmentalist foundation on the surface, but really it was all about making these laws and these rules, regulations, to work towards global governance. I mean, they all have their different jobs, but the end goal is, a, is the same. And he talks about in here how they were allowed, Gorbachev was allowed to have this huge, huge get-together at the Presidio military base for free, paid for by the taxpayers. But it just goes to show you that our military at the top and our government at the top worked with the likes of these communists like Gorbachev and we're really working to undo our sovereignty and move towards this global governance. And I'm going to read a lot more about Gorbachev in the coming months, Jesus willing. But I think it's a really interesting thing that they immediately after the Cold War buddied up to him. And this guy was he's a scumbag. 
Krieg in here is talking about the European Union, and he talks about something I thought was interesting. He says, remember that the Satori are of the old world character and makeup. In order to understand the European Union, the reason for the pressure to create and expand the EC, you must have an understanding of the European unification and consolidation efforts. When Julius Caesar conquered the Gauls, the Helvetians, and the Germanic tribes of Central Europe, he created the first European Union. When the Emperor Hadrian subsequently unified the British Isles south of the Hadrian Wall, a new Union of Europe spanned the continent from the rivers of Rhine and Fino in the north to substantial parts of the Middle East in the south. After the collapse of the Roman Empire, Europe would again be united under the reign of Charlemagne. And I think this is really important. I don't want to bore you, but I believe this is where we're headed here. And I think that uh, maybe you'll get something out of this. He says, Japan is without a doubt the most advanced nation on the Pacific Rim. It therefore stands to reason that they would, along with the G7 nations, be involved in the global plan. Remember, uh, Japan is a big part of the Trilateral Committee or Commission. This is particularly the case because of the structure of Japan's economy. Japan, unlike the rest of the industrial nations, has closed markets and consists basically of less than 10 production enterprises. This small number of businesses, now this is the important part, this small number of businesses controls the entire economy of the country. With just over 100 members in the Trilateral Commission membership, the Mandarin organization representing one-third of that membership, Japan is strongly involved, and Japan's industrial makeup would be called feudal if such a thing actually existed, with less than 10 firms controlling over 70% of industrial output and the balance working full-time for them. A classic feudalist system is in operation. This is exactly what the Satori want for the rest of the world, as such systems are easily controlled by a very small group. Now remember, that's what they want in everything. That's what it all comes down to, is controlling, easily controlling, streamlining their control over the world. And it's not hard to figure out why they would want to do that, of course, to make things so much easier and, of course, they will sell it. I mean, it's happening more and more and little by little. But if they have to sell it, they'll sell it as they are the experts and they are the scientists and they are the technocrats who only know these things and other people aren't privy to this information. They're the experts. And, of course, they'll say that they want to do what's best for humanity, for the greater good, the great work and everything. So... That's where we're leading. I think most people can see that. And, of course, we'll see that uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon and maybe Walmart and there'll be other companies come about that will be in control of nearly everything. But you already have BlackRock and Vanguard owning just about everything there is to own, having a piece of all kinds of different companies from the jab manufacturers to the testers and testing machines for the jabs to the medical equipment used for the testing to the medical equipment used 
in the hospitals, when people go into the hospitals, when they are sick, it just goes on and on and on. And the money is in you being sick, of course. The money is in you being afraid, so you'll continue to get these different pokes and, and, and follow along with whatever narrative that they are putting out. They own the media. All of the information, for the most part, comes from a small number of people, and it's handed down and just spreads all over the country and all over the world because there's only, what, five or six companies, large corporations who own all the media, the mainstream corporate media. And that's, of course, why they want to destroy the ability for everyday people to communicate. They don't want us getting around their misinformation and disinformation and half-truths. And they're just outright lies and propaganda. So people can see that. We can see what's going on. And you, you know that... I still believe that the UN will be the one to head up a lot of this because that is the structure that they have in place. And it's like guys like um, Nicholas Hager, really good writer. But I wanted to flip over to one of his books. It's called The Syndicate, The Story of the Coming World Government. But uh, he does talk about how the CFR helped create the UN. And I don't know, you know, I like to go back and... I like to kind of set the premise for what happened and, and kind of show how we got to where we are. But I wanted you to understand this. He's talking about the Cold War and then the creation of the UN. So we'll start right here. The world of the 1930s was one of fading European empires. The Second World War destroyed them. Hitler had failed to establish a new European empire. The syndicate now took their new tack. They encouraged the division of the world into blocks, with the individual national aspirations being suppressed. The progress of the Cold War can be described in stages, from 1944 to around 1949, an Eastern European bloc was establishing under Stalin. Simultaneously, a Western Empire bloc was created through martial aid, and cemented with the EEC in the 1950s. The European empires in Africa and elsewhere were dismantled and leveled in the 50s to the 70s by Cold War local conflicts. Both Eastern and Western blocs attempted to use the newly created UN for their own ends. Their competition reached its height in the Kennedy-Khrushchev era. The next 20 years saw a new phase of Soviet expansion. Around the world, there's a series of messy conflicts highlighted in Cuba, Vietnam, Congo, Iran, Afghanistan, and the former Yugoslavia. In 1989, the abolition of the Berlin Wall began to unify Eastern and Western European blocs into a United States of Europe. The rest of the world then began to develop into blocs. Oil interests remain key throughout. The Eastern European Empire, he says, the key to controlling Eastern Europe after the war was whoever held Berlin. Montgomery had been ready to take it, but his commanding officer Eisenhower, along with Roosevelt and General Marshall, who advised Roosevelt on army matters, wouldn't allow him. As a result, the arrangements for these new blocs were confirmed at Tehran, Yalta, and Potsdam. 
where the world was split into three parts, a Russian zone, including Hungary, in which the Americans would not interfere, an American zone, in which the Russians would not interfere, and the third world, for which Russia and America would be free to compete. The three leaders at Yalta were all Freemasons and had exclusively Masonic advisors. They represented British, American, Russian, Freemasonry, Zionist Rosicrucianism, American Templarism, and the remnants of the Grand Orient Bolshevism, much of which Stalin had eliminated for the priori of Sion in his Great Purge. Freemasonry had established the basis for the new Cold War. Now here he gets into the creation of the UN. The CFR syndicate creates the UN. The foundations of the UN can be traced back to 1939 when the League of Nations ceased functioning and the American Council on Foreign Relations began planning its replacement. On its advice, the U.S. State Department set up a special research division in 1940 headed by the CFR's Leo Pavlovsky and totally staffed by the CFR. The CFR's foreign affairs urged the creation of the Commonwealth of Free Nations a few months before Pearl Harbor in 1941. The term United Nations was first used of the nations opposing the axis of powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan, on January 1, 1942, when 26 United Nations made a declaration of war aims. The plan for a UN was conceived at the Moscow Conference in 1943, when Maltov, Litanov, and Vyshinsky proposed it to Cordell Hull, U.S. Secretary of State from 1933 to 1944, and a devotee of expanding world trade, and Avril Harriman as means of bringing peace. Hull recommended approval, and the Senate approved the plan. The idea of the UN was proposed at the 1944 Dumbarton Oaks Conference, where Molotov worked on the draft of the UN Charter with Rockefeller's employees and later Nelson Rockefeller's personal representative at the UN, Alger Hiss, a former State Department official who was convicted of perjury in 1950 and exposed as a Soviet spy and who was therefore not acting on the American side. The Charter of the UN was written at Yalta in February 1945 by Molotov, who represented the Soviet, and Alger Hiss, who represented the Rockefeller-Soviet Axis, and the CFR, the Rockefeller Foreign Office. Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin agreed at Yalta that the UN should be established. The CFR had taken over the State Department by 1939 and funded by the Rockefellers of $0.5 million from both the Rockefeller Foundation and, of course, the Carnegie Endowment after the war. It has nominated most of the officials in every president's administration since the 1920s. The American delegation to the UN Conference at San Francisco in 1949 contained at least 47 CFR members. Under Alger Hiss, the founding conference's secretary general, the long-awaited organization was formally created and the U.S. Senate approved the idea in just days. In December 1946, the Rockefeller Foundation donated a check to buy 18 acres of land in Manhattan on which the U.N. building was built. John D. Rockefeller III contributed $8.5 million, with New York City contributing a further $4.25 million. 
From 1970 to 1985, David Rockefeller was the chairman of the CFR. A year later, two members of the CFR, one of them being James Warburg, established the United World Federalists, a merging of the Americans United for World Government, the World Federalists for the Massachusetts Committee for World Federation, the Students' Federalism, the World Citizens of Georgia, and the World Republic. They all agreed to strengthen the United Nations into a world government of limited powers, adequate to prevent a war and having direct jurisdiction over the individual. Bear with me, guys. The UN, open to all peace-loving nations and sovereign equals, claimed to maintain global peace and security, though in effect it favored communism and the balance of power. Right from the outset, the Soviet Union held three votes to America's one in the General Assembly. At the Dumbarton Oaks Conference of August 1944, the Soviet delegation had shocked Roosevelt by presenting Stalin's demand for 16 votes, one for each republic. At the Yalta Conference in February 1945, this was reduced to three, the USSR, Ukraine, and White Russia. The UN structure included a Security Council that then consisted of 11 members, Crowley's number, which had responsibility for maintaining international peace and security. The permanent members, the five great powers, had a veto and seemed unable to cooperate or reach agreement, a weakness the USSR manipulated to fan the flames of decolonizing wars. They pressed for the incidents to be referred to the General Assembly, which required a two-thirds majority of all members and were prepared to use the Soviet veto. Nelson Rockefeller agreed with Stalin that the UN would not interfere in Russia's affairs. In return, Stalin would continue to supply Soviet oil to Rockefeller companies and keep the Bolsheviks out of Saudi Arabia and Iran. So that's a little bit of how the UN started. And the, the reason I wanted to say that is because the UN is so important in this whole coming world government system, this feudalist system that we're talking about here. Okay, I'm going to flip to the end of this book here. He's got a section that says, How a United States of the World May Be Consolidated. He says, If the New World Order were being conducted by saints as a utopian replica of heaven on earth, then it would lead to the abolition of war, disease, famine, and unrest, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and would be wholly good. It would be an outcome the whole of mankind would go along for, and it would be consolidated by the enthusiastic assent of all who place the interests of mankind above those of the nation-state. But what would a syndicate New World Order be like? The danger is it would be a socialist state in which there would be a redistribution of wealth and a reduced standard of living for all Westerners. There would be howls of rage as their hard-earned pensions and savings are shared with the poorest among mankind who have paid no contributions. There would be a regimentation and restriction on movement with no freedom of worship, no freedom to buy or own private property, no free speech, no freedom to publish. From a personal point of view, most Westerners would not want to give up such freedoms and make such sacrifices. From the point of view of the whole, however, they might well come to regard a system that brings equality to all the world's citizens as worthy of such sacrifices. One of the objects of the Fabian Society has been to make equality and justice synonymous 
whereas equality and justice are not identical, such trust would be misplaced. Then he says, could it involve mind control? There's more important stuff, guys. Such, as, such an idea may seem preposterous. Some of Aldous Huxley's ideas in Brave New World, 1932, such as test tube babies, seemed preposterous at the time and have since become a reality. Modern advertising techniques and political spin are two examples of the way our minds are controlled today, and mind control techniques such as NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, and Silver Mind Control are widely promoted in the New Age and business fields. The consolidation of the United States of the world would be achieved through mind control in the coming decades. When bombarded with microwaves of 425 megacycles, people lose their power to resist and become zombies. This gets back to Mind War and Michael Aquino. It could be possible to turn the world's population into a slave race, a new technologically created underclass, by beaming microwaves at them from cell phone masts and other sources of microwaves. A central world computer will know everything about us and will monitor our movements on digital cameras as we drive around the country passing beneath the gantries that can take 60,000 pictures per hour. This has already begun to happen in a few parts of Britain. The ring roads around cities could be turned into moats that keep the urban population in and the rural populations out with the help of tanks sitting on roads like the M25 and of centrally controlled cameras. The Grand Boulevards in Paris were laid out by Haussmann in the 19th century to allow rapid access across the city so that the forces of law and order could quickly quell riots. The concept of the rings roads as moats is therefore not really far-fetched. I'll finish this up. I'm just going to look and see what uh, year this book was written. So this book was written in 2004. So, been a while, but this guy nailed it on a bunch of these things. There's already much in place that, with a little tweaking, could bring in George Orwell's Thought Police, and we're there now. Amateur computer hackers are already able to access the computers of the unwary. What could professional hackers do? There is a legal move afoot to compel ISPs, internet service providers, and mobile phone companies to retain all emails and mobile phone conversations for five years. This is being promoted as part of the campaign against criminal activity. There were howls of outrage when it was discovered that Microsoft had inserted a hidden module into their Windows operating system, which would have enabled them to monitor the use of their software. The module was locked and could only be accessed by Microsoft. Thanks, Gates. Those who apply for credit are already aware of the amount of information stored about them in their credit rating. How much more information could be collated on centralized computers from other computerized records? According to the American Free Press, as of May 6, 2002, a Bilderberg-controlled UN agency is to have the power to have access to all bank accounts and credit card transactions. With all this already in place, the infrastructure of world government is already present in the embryonic form. So, you know, this was in 2004, but we've seen so many things come along, and he was, as I said, he was nailing it. Uh, things have come along even farther than what he was talking about in a lot of different ways. And so, 
it's funny because, well, it's funny because it's not funny. It's it's actually horrible and depressing, and it'll piss you off, pisses me off. But the way society gets so used to every little thing, and it's like, especially with the left, they'll say, oh, no, that'll never happen. You conspiracy theorist, you know, tinfoil hat wearer, and then it happens. And then they say it about the next thing, that could never happen. You're crazy. And then it happens. And we've seen that happen time and time again, that same scenario. And, of course, the media goes along with it and makes fun of anyone who you know, kind of points out some caution that, hey, maybe we're getting screwed over, maybe this or that is not like you guys are reporting. And then you have these weak, pathetic Republican conservatives who I believe are just there for show, as I said earlier on. And it's kind of like the old, I think it was Bugs Bunny. I don't even remember the scenario exactly, but I know that was like, you better not cross this line, and he paints a line, and the guy crosses it, and he backs up. You better not cross this line. I guess he says, I dare you to cross this line. He just keeps crossing that line, and they keep moving the line, and you know the Republicans keep painting that line, then backing up and backing up. That is where we are, to the point that you know there's not a lot to still defend. And so it's all about normalizing everything, normalizing this, that, and the other. And the media normalizes everything eventually on behalf of their Satori masters. I'm going to read a little bit more, and then I'll call it a day. But he has a section, Hagger here, in this book called The Syndicate, which I do recommend. It's a hell of a book. Uh, but it's called Depopulation, right? And we can all kind of see how this might pertain to us currently. He says here, Depopulation. The vision of the inspirers of world government surfaced on July 24, 1980, when the results of the two-volume study begun by the CFR, the Trilateral Commission, the IMF, under Jimmy Carter, and involving hundreds of consultants, were unveiled at a press conference by Secretary of State Edmund Muskie. The Global 2000 Report to the President, and I'm sure you can find that online, I think I've even seen it, this projected the global economic trends of the next 20 years. From 1980 to 2000, hundreds of outside consultants contributed, as did scores of task force personnel from the State Department, the White House, and the Environmental Quality Council. The study predicted a world endangered by overpopulation, food shortages, and environmental hazards, and by implication forecast 170 million deaths through disease and famine in the developing countries by 2000. Just to break there for a second, and we see these celebrities and these people with these big voices talking about philanthropy and how we need to do this, that, or the other, yet they don't even walk the walk. But through different means, we learn how to farm better in a lot of ways, and they were wrong about these predicted outcomes, so it makes you wonder because they don't want to be wrong about that. You know, we think about the Georgia Guidestones. Depopulation is a religion. It's a cult. The report built on the Rockefeller's policies. Population control was given prominence by John D. Rockefeller III's establishment of a population council in 1952 to issue manifestos in favor of 
zero population growth. By the Club of Rome's 1971 report, published in 72, called Limits to Growth, and by Lawrence Rockefeller's 1972 report on population growth. The report predicted that the world population would rise from 4.1 billion in 75 to 6.35 billion in 2000, 10 billion by 2030, and 30 billion by the end of the 21st century. By 2091, page 428 of the report, after 2000, 100 million people will be added each year compared with 75 million in 75. The report lowered the figure of 6.35 billion to 6.18 billion, as 170 million were expected to die. In the years ahead, lack of food for the urban poor, lack of jobs, and increasing illness and misery may slow the growth of the LDC, the less developed countries, cities, and alter the trend. Difficult as urban conditions are, conditions in rural areas of many LDCs are generally worse. Food, water, health, and income problems are often most severe in outlying agricultural and grazing areas. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but just check this out. An updated medium series population projection would show little change from global 2000 study projections. World population in 2000 would be estimated about 6.18 as opposed to 6.35. The scaled-down figure of 6.18 was too pessimistic. In fact, the world's population reached 6 billion on August 5, 1999, just a few months before 2000, which suggests that the true number of deaths due to disease and famine may have been 350 million, not 170 million. There was no fall in the world's birth rate. By 2003, the world's population had crept up to 6.3 billion. Ah, <gasps> oh, the horror. The report raised the question of how great a population the Earth can carry. Global 2000 study does not estimate the Earth's carrying capacity, but it does provide a basis for evaluating an earlier estimate published in the U.S. National Academy of Sciences report called Resources and Man. In this 1969 report, the Academy concluded that a world population of 10 billion is close to, if not above, the maximum that an intensely managed world might hope to support with some degree of comfort and individual choice. Nothing in the Global 2000 study counters the Academy's conclusions. Now I'm going to skip several paragraphs here. And I'm going to go to this part. It says, The Global Future Report sets no targets contains no tables. It speaks in very general terms. Is it to be taken at face value, or is it between-the-line stuff, he asks. Unless population growth can be brought under control, wretched consequences will follow for mankind. The opportunity to stabilize the world's population below 10 million, for example, is slipping away. So we have just seen that the declared aim of the report was that global population would eventually stabilize at 8 billion. There is a half-hearted notion regarding 2 billion people, i.e. 6.18 billion, minus 4.16 billion, a third of mankind on its present total of just over 6 billion. He asks, did this scaled-down figure represent a prediction or an informed guess, or did it represent an objective? a target to be achieved as an effect of policy. He's got a lot more information in here, but I'm going to end it with this, and I'll probably 
go back to this eventually. He says, Can the syndicate, with its pursuit of Freemasonry, manage the world population problem sensitively without harming human beings? Or is it the chilling reality that the consolidation of their world government cannot take place without harming a third, perhaps two-thirds, of mankind? If the syndicate's wish is to implement the four horsemen of the apocalypse as policy, then its ideas could be described as neo-Hitlerian. If they seek a Malthusian replica of hell on earth with two billion dead, and if the world population rises from six billion now to 10 billion by 2030 as forecast, and the aim is to keep the world's population at its 2000 level, then another four billion must die within three decades. This conclusion must fill all with deep unease if not dread. Deaths on such a scale cannot be allowed to happen. Courageous people everywhere must mobilize, build flood defenses, and influence public policies to make sure they are not allowed to happen. It would be better to be assassinated or liquidated than to tolerate, consent to, a world in which two billion, let alone an additional four billion in the future, are systematically slaughtered as a result of revolutionary thinking. Right thinking and morally sound people everywhere must oppose such a preposterous scenario no matter what the cost to their job prospects or their lives. The syndicate worked for world revolution before, during, and after the First World War and during the Second World War. Their descendants were very active during the Cold War and during the reunification of Europe in our own time and have used the UN and NATO as a world army. Are they pursuing the same aspirations and traditions that drove their forebearers during the first half of the 20th century? There must be a strong presumption that they are. Do these considerations include controlling world population? Are the Global 2000 reports policy rather than forecasts? They were accepted as policy by President Carter and their recommendations have the effect of reducing the world's populations. They were policy, members of the jury. The drive towards world government, the global plantation, has been achieved at the cost of numerous local wars, the collapse of the European empires, and the dismantling of many nation-states to pay way for a United States of Europe. There have been millions of deaths in wars and decolonization and independence as liberation movements have conducted guerrilla warfare to bring in what they thought would be a new nation, but which is turning out to be the creation of a new regional bloc in world government. I'll stop right there and say, hence my concerns for the revolution in Cuba, because the deep state has intervened in numerous or have led numerous coups only because they wanted to get their people in to work towards more control and, and towards this global governance idea. Are not Western leaders opposed to Europe's nation-states? Are they not bringing in a new European constitution while concealing their real intentions? Are they not creating a world government for a few, the syndicate, to prosper commercially? while the many are disenfranchised? Are not the poor of the world to be made victims of war merely so that the oligarchs and the syndicate can flourish? George Orwell saw the greatest threat to our well-being as a totalitarianism. 
The greatest threat is not totalitarianism, but covert oligarchy masquerading as democracy and manipulating it and hiding behind it in a totalitarian way. Has a secretive shadow world government enmeshed world leaders in their schemes? And are Western publics and voters being deceived even on what has happened in Afghanistan and Iraq? Members of the jury, Western military action in pursuit of a hidden commercial agenda connected with oil was disguised as action against terrorists, and this pattern is ongoing and is openly being called by key Western leaders the Fourth World War. Their assumption is that the 40-year-long Cold War was the Third World War. Are some Western leaders knowingly deceptive? Are they building a political United States of the world, which is to have a one-world currency and a world government? Is the European Union a dummy run for a world union? That is for the jury to decide. If what they are doing is open and above board, why the secrecy and over-the-top security? Now, he calls them the syndicate, and Craig called them the Satori. I call them the elites, or Dennis Cuddy calls them the power elite, whatever you want to call them, the New World Order. They're the people behind government and world powers. And you see this whole horrible play, this terrifying play, being acted out around the world behind the scenes. And I want to say good on Europeans for pushing back against these mandates and lockdowns because they see where things are going. While Americans are sitting around, you know, Netflix and chill and watching Pornhub and eating fast food, Europeans are actually fighting for their freedom. So, whatever they call this new feudalist system under the Great Reset, whoever's in control of it, it does not matter because we see what the end goal is. It's the consolidation of powers. It's the ability to control millions of people and possibly even to depopulate millions of people. So, that's my show for today. I hope that you guys have enjoyed it and got something out of it as always. As usual, I want to thank my patrons first and foremost. Thank you to the newest, Mr. Thaddeus. Thank you to Mr. John Brisson from We've Read the Documents and all his wonderful shows. Thank you to Jack from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Thank you to Aaron. Thank you, James. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, David. Thank you, Kilowatt, Kathleen, Cody, and as always, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. And last but not least, thank you, Aaron. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Remember, my Patreon is forward slash the odd man out. You can join the Society of the Cryptic Savants. I'm going to do a patron exclusive podcast. In a couple of days. It's going to be a little bit shorter than the normal one, but it's going to be exclusive only to my patrons. And I appreciate everything. Sorry that I haven't been able to put the newest show up super early like I normally do, but I was on vacation last week and I actually put that episode up a week early. So thank you guys. I appreciate all your support. I look forward to talking with you again, Jesus willing. 
And also remember to check me out on underscore the odd man out at Twitter and Instagram. And in the profiles, you have all my other links to my other platforms. Thank you to Alternate Current Radio and all my friends there for posting up the oddcast. Thank you to Fringe Radio Network for doing the same. And thank you also to Mr. John Brisson for posting up my latest show to his We've Read the Documents YouTube channel. It's a fantastic channel, so please get over there and check it out. And I just appreciate all your help, man. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.